0: Welcome to episode one of Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined, and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Just a quick disclaimer for today's episode. This story contains some graphic descriptions and subject matter citing violence, animal abuse, and self-harm. I mean absolutely no disrespect to the family of the victim, and the purpose of this podcast is to educate and spread awareness of the disturbing crime committed. Everyone has had a fantasy at some stage, whether that is to become a rock star or just to wreak havoc on that horrible boss of yours. Majority of the time, though, These fantasies, at least the negative ones, don't make their way into volition. And this is often for the better. Although with some individuals, such as serial killers, rapists, etc, these fantasies guide and give them a blueprint of what they would like to achieve. They create the perfect fantasy in their mind and then attempt to recreate that fantasy in real life. These fantasies can exist solely in their heads, or they often sketch, write, or visually represent them. They will then, more often than not, take the steps to make these fantasies a reality. In this way, a fantasy can be seen as a blueprint to a crime. For two such young people living in the small mining town of Valkom, South Africa, their twisted fantasies led them to become a true match made in hell. There are two individuals involved in the murder discussed in this episode, I will begin by delving into their lives and the moments that led up to the murder that shocked the country. Sinead van Heerden was born into a tumultuous family life, as her mother, Charmaine, had not planned on having a third child due to the unhealthy relationship she was experiencing with her husband, Sinead's father, Jacques. When she had reached a point where she was finally ready to divorce him, it was then that she discovered that she was pregnant with Shanae. Charmaine, for this reason, apparently struggled to form an attachment to Shanae, as she saw her as the child from a man she no longer wanted to be with. She apparently refused to hold her newborn child, tore up Shanae's baby photos and never developed a bond with her as she had with her other children, leaving Jacques to feed, bathe and console the ever crying infant. Eventually, six years later, her parents divorced, and not a moment too soon. Over the next few years, her mother dated men who were all allegedly abusive and aggressive towards Charmaine and her children, the one man beating Shanae so hard with a cane that she bled. Her father later married a lady called Tanya, and Shanae then attempted to live with them for a while. Shanae had a deep love for art and drawing, however in her early childhood she began to draw dark scenes and began to speak to people who were not there. Although many children have imaginary friends growing up, her family became concerned. When questioned about the one individual she often saw, she said his name was Azazel. At later stages she also began to talk to another person that was invisible to the outside world. His name was Norman. It was however the first imaginary friend that started to raise real concerns for her family. Azazel, the name of her friend, happens to be the name of a goat demon or fallen angel, described in the book of Enoch and in some ancient Jewish text. As she was only eight years old at the time, the propensity for creating this type of name was unusual. However, she was the granddaughter of a head church pastor, so it is entirely likely that during one of his sermons she had heard him mention this entity's name. Her strict Christian grandfather was convinced that his granddaughter was possessed and even went as far as trying to exorcise the demon out of her in front of the church when she was only 8 years old, an experience that never left her and truly scarred her. She admitted to never feeling at home in a church again after being paraded and made out to be a freak. She was also terrified of the dark as a child. Really not that uncommon in most children. And in an attempt to lull her into a sense of security, her mother had told her that her dolls used to come alive at night. But this just traumatized her further. I mean, I'm not really sure how that was supposed to make her feel better. Sine would then tie her dolls up and put tape over their mouths before sleeping each night. As she grew older, the instability of her childhood continued, and she attempted to stab her stepmother with a knife at the age of 10 years old. She was then put on mood-stabilizing medication when she was still in primary school. But that episode was short-lived. It was also during this time that she began to self-mutilate, an activity which would continue for years. Self-harm usually starts as a way to relieve the buildup of pressure from distressing thoughts and feelings. This might give temporary relief from the emotional pain the person is feeling. It's important to know that this relief is only temporary. Over the next few years, she began to engage in an activity with her father that would have a major impact on the rest of her life and the crime that she would later commit. He began to take her hunting with him. She was often left in charge of skinning the animals, bucks or hares that he shot. In her own account, she had later said that the initial moment of sliding a knife between the skin and tissue of an animal and separating the two was the most fulfilling experience of her life. The only other thing she later said came close to this feeling was when she self-harmed by cutting into her arms and legs. She would collect dead animals in the fault, along with the frozen rats they fed to their pet snake and skin them. In essence, she became obsessed with the very act and couldn't get enough of it. As she neared her teenage years, things became even more out of hand as she grew more reckless and fell in with a rough crowd. Around the age of 12 years old, she began to do designer drugs, such as ecstasy. During one night, an older man whom she considered to be a friend took advantage of her in her altered state of mind and raped her she had been a virgin at the time she moved on from this incident without telling her parents using her art to express her pain it is thought that only her sister had a slight idea of what had happened at the time without counseling or justice for the rape this experience just added to the trauma in her childhood all the mental health side effects that occur after a sexual assault or rape were left unchecked such as ptsd depression and dissociation to mention a few When she was 15, her mother moved to New Zealand with her husband, and Shanae was then left with her father and stepmother. She did, however, have a functional relationship with her father. Her father and his wife did their best to support her through her teenage years, believing that it was a phase that she would grow out of. And during this time, she was also developing a fascination with the occult and paganism. She then went on to become involved with a 22-year-old man who was a self-proclaimed satanist. She was deeply in love with him, but allegedly claimed to have had no interest in the satanic side of his life, but rather focused on other aspects of the occult, such as voodoo and wicca. At the age of 16, she then dropped out of school and started studying art and graphic design at a college. There seemed to be a marked change in her life as she not only moved in with her older sister but she also appeared to not be hanging out with her usual unsavory crowd or doing drugs she even went back to her natural blonde hair color she excelled at her studies qualified and managed to secure a job as a graphic designer her father truly believed that she would be okay he was relieved at this prospect unfortunately that relief would be short-lived during this time she also entered into a relationship with a man named warren he to this day states that he had no idea of the darkness in her past as they got along extremely well upon hearing about the crime committed he shared his thoughts on facebook which included some choice words translated from afrikaans he had said i can't believe that i went out with that I feel like taking their heads and running them into a wall. His family had loved her too and believed that she was the sweetest girl who would make the best wife for their son. Warren had a friend named Roy who had a major role to play in bringing the two future killers together. From the moment he met Shanae, Roy attested that there was something about her that just felt off, even though everyone else believed that she was the loveliest person. Roy also believed that he could read people's energies. A few months into dating and with no warning, Shanae broke up with Warren and they never saw each other again. At a party at Roy's house a few months prior to this breakup, Shanae had met a man who would be integral to the events that were soon to unfold, 24-year-old Martens van der Merthe. And so begins his narrative. Martens was a resident of Valcom, who always felt like an outsider, citing a childhood that was not all rainbows and butterflies, although a far cry from Sinead's childhood. He had a brother and his parents had divorced early on in his life, but he never stated that this had a major impact on him. He maintained a good relationship with both parents and excelled in school. However, during this time, Martens was dealing with a mental illness that became crippling, before he managed to receive help. He remembers his first visual and auditory hallucination at the age of 6 years old. During this hallucination, a dragon-like creature had appeared to him, saying that it was giving him the world as a gift, but one day it would return to take it all back. As a child, not knowing what this all meant, and not telling anyone, he believed that he was the chosen one who was special and destined for greatness beyond the norm. He then spent the rest of his time desperate to recreate that feeling. His hallucinations became more frequent, and that ended up in a trip to the psychiatrist's office, which resulted in the diagnosis of schizophrenia at the age of 14 years old. Schizophrenia is a mental disorder in which people interpret reality abnormally. It may result in some combination of hallucinations, delusions, and extremely disordered thinking and behavior that impacts daily functioning. Although debilitating through psychotherapy and medication, schizophrenia can be treated and managed. His father, Francois, was extremely supportive during this time and was said to have spent his life savings and even some of his pension fund in order to make sure that Martens received the treatment he needed. His mother, a principal at the local school, however, never seemed to accept his illness the way his father did and was said to have distanced herself from him in certain aspects as he aged he learned how to manage his schizophrenia with psychotherapy and medication but he dropped out of school as his mental illness diagnosis had been leaked as Valcom was a small town With some small-minded people, he faced much bullying and backlash from the community. However, his treatments were incredibly successful and bouts of aggression were the only symptoms of his illness that still affected him from time to time. His family lived on a small holding, which is like a farm or a larger piece of rural land. And there were several dogs on the property. When stray cats used to wander into their property and fall prey to the dogs, It was his job to clean up the remains. He later admitted to being fascinated by the dead cats and even left some of their bodies aside to explore the decomposition process. He once found a live cat one day and, without thinking, snapped the creature's neck. Yeah, that's a red flag. The idea of death fascinated him from this point on. He then went on to help his father in the carpentry business, and later went on to open his own furniture business, operating out of his father's workspace. So at this point in time, feeling as though he had a good grip on life, he decided to go off of his medication. This is a common occurrence in not only schizophrenia patients, but with many individuals who take more chronic medications for mood disorders. And this is for two main reasons. The first is that these medications often have many side effects. In Martin's case, they caused him to gain a lot of weight and he became morbidly obese. Secondly, As the medication begins to reach optimum efficiency, it balances the chemistry in the brain and body, thus returning the individual to a state of homeostasis. Feeling so much better and wanting to avoid further side effects from the medication, these individuals then stop their medication cold turkey. Now, whilst it can work for some individuals if monitored, more often than not, it results in a downward spiral. Martens, then off of his meds, decided that he wanted more freedom, so he moved in with Roy. Remember Roy from earlier? Yeah, him. So at this point in time, he was feeling over the moon, he was feeling really great and he'd even lost 60 kilograms, which is a feat in itself. Roy, surprisingly, considering his self-proclaimed ability to read energies, didn't pick up anything strange or dark within Martens. Although he was aware of his mental health diagnosis, he felt that his friend was a generally friendly and kind person, someone who would go out of their way to make another person happy. Keep that in mind. So fast forward to the night of a party at Roy's shortly after Warren and Shanae broke up. Shanae had come to the party and begun to talk to Martens and by the end of the night, they were kissing and they were infatuated with one another. By December of 2010, 20-year-old Shanae and 24-year-old Martens Fandamava were dating and texting each other daily and so began the relationship that marked the beginning of the end. The two were happy together and they seemed to bring out the best qualities in one another, to the delight of both of their families. Shanae's father described Martins as a polite and respectful young man. The closer they became, the more time they spent at Roy's house, much to his dismay he began to observe things that seemed quite strange. Roy had noticed a deep cut on Martens' chest one morning when he walked past him in the bathroom, and he had asked him about it. Martens had simply said that Sinead and himself liked to try new things in the bedroom, and that there was nothing more to it, defending her passionately. But soon enough, Martens began to change and both himself and Shanae began to withdraw from society and their families. However, Shanae's text message history revealed two completely different people. One moment she was engaging in the dark narrative with Martens, whom she now referred to as her dark prince, and the next sending bubbly, light-hearted text messages to her family. As they became closer, they realized that they both had many shared interests. They both felt like outsiders. They both had self-harmed during their lives and they both had experimented with the killing of animals as children. Most significantly, they also both began to research religions and areas of the occult more seriously. Together, they pulled different ideas from different religions and combined that with their own interests to create a worldview or a lens that they preferred. In one of the nights that followed along with Roy, they visited the cemetery, which was one of their favorite places, and they exchanged rings with serpents on them, which were also dipped in their blood, as they expressed their undying love to one another in a ritual that they had created. Shane's interest was mainly in serial killers and together they used to watch Dexter, a popular television series about a forensic blood splatter analyst who moonlights as a vigilante serial killer hunting down criminals. On a side note, the new season of Dexter is coming out in November. I'm just saying. They then started calling themselves Dexter and Lumen. Lumen is a female character from Dexter who also begins killing people with him to exact revenge after she was gang raped. This relationship spiraled out of control quickly, from being a relatively normal partnership to one in which they were creating an alternative world in which they existed. They would later name this world Ashmore Valley. Together though, they understood each other and could express the same dark desires. Within each other, they had found a safe space. Around the beginning of February, they began searching for someone whom they, in their own words, could release their darkness onto. The dark dark fantasies that lived within the minds of Shanae and Martens differed in some ways, but their overall intention was similar. Martens wanted to kill someone, preferably with a knife, whereas Shanae longed to skin the face and stitch closed the mouth of a human being. And so they began to practice and hone their skills. At the beginning of March, they moved in together into a small flat in St Helena, Falcom. Now that they had a space of their own, They were on the lookout for ways to physically express all of the dark thoughts and desires that they had been discussing in detail. They became more closed off to society, which was intensified when Shanae's sister Liesel, whom she was extremely close to, immigrated to New Zealand. At this point, I would like to express a warning that there are descriptions of animal abuse coming up. They began their practice with two kittens that they had bought from a pet shop. They had then filmed these incidents. Shanae is seen sitting cross-legged in PJs holding this little kitten, which was later nailed to a cross and skinned. She cut off the one kitten's head quickly, whereas Martens frantically stabbed at the other kitten. Although she had later said that the noises that the kitten had made had bothered her, she didn't want to spoil the experience for him. They then decided to up the stakes and initially wanted to adopt a dog from the SBCA. However, later Sine would recount how she felt bad to do anything to a dog that had been abused its whole life and who had hope for the future only to be killed. It was then that they decided to move on to the next best thing, a human being. And this is where Michael von Eck enters the narrative. Michael was a 23-year-old young man, the only son with three sisters who was working at his first job as an electrician at the mine. He was also recovering from a bad breakup that had occurred around six months prior and he had been feeling quite down over the past few months. He was extremely well-loved in the community, always willing to help out those in need, and he was extremely into fitness, also having achieved a black belt in karate. He was described as being incredibly kind and loyal. On March 31st, 2011, Shanae Van Heerden opened a profile on a dating app called Go, and this is where she made contact with Michael Van Eck. This app was similar to a Tinder style app. She later admitted that it had felt weird to be flirting with another man whilst sitting right beside her boyfriend. But apparently that was the only weird thing about the situation. She had suggested that Michael and herself meet up in the cemetery as it would guarantee them some intimate alone time. Although initially shocked by this suggestion, in the end, the appeal of this young woman overruled his initial thoughts and he agreed to the meeting place. Shanae and Martins had chosen the graveyard for its symbolic significance to them. They believed that a kill in this space would ensure that the person's soul would go to their spirit world, Ashmore Valley. Remember that place? The day of the murder, which was two days later, Shanae had made a list of all the items she would require, such as surgical menorah blades, needles, black bags, wet wipes, a rope, a blanket, candles, rocks, etc. And then also she had made a separate list of things to take with her, such as a black dress, a costume, guts, a hammer, and more. She had picked out an outfit, a white dress that she wore in previous videos where they had killed the kittens. Half an hour before their meeting, she began to feel nervous. Oh, oh no, not because she was about to kill someone. No, not that. But she was nervous because she was worried that she would have to make small talk, which she didn't excel at or feel comfortable doing. She felt like that would be an awkward thing to navigate. Over at Michael's household, he told his parents he was going on a date and he would pick up the girl from St. Helena and then go to the movies. Although when he left, he seemed to head in the opposite direction to St. Helena, his mother didn't think too much of it and settled in to spend the Saturday night with her husband. Shanae and Martins had prepped for Michael and laid a blanket out behind the temple in the Jewish portion of the cemetery. They opened a bottle of wine and placed out glasses. They had set up a date from hell. Shanae and Michael had agreed to meet at 9 p.m. At 20 to 9, records indicate that Shanae switched off her cell phone and went to wait by the entrance of the cemetery. At 5 minutes to 9, Michael had pulled into the parking lot. Sinead greeted him at his car in her short white dress, flirting with him and leading him into the cemetery. There was no way to know what crossed his mind during this time, but Sinead recalled him taking charge of the conversation once they had sat down and she had poured the wine. Very soon though, she grew bored of the facade and initiated their grand plan. She gave the signal by leaning in to kiss Michael. At this point, Martins appeared behind him and planted a hunting knife into his back. Michael would not go down though without a fight. Even after sustaining 29 stab wounds, he continued to fight for his life. Martens called Shanae at one point to help him, as Michael would not stay down. Shanae, who had been watching from behind the temple building, as this was not the part that she enjoyed, grabbed another knife and stabbed Michael three times in the back. In addition to the other 29 stab wounds inflicted by Martens, these three were the final proverbial nail in the coffin, and Michael dropped to his knees. And he said to Martens, Just kill me martens claims that he then offered michael the opportunity to say a prayer before slitting his throat once he was dead they dragged him back to the blanket and shanae's part of the fantasy thus began they removed his right arm and hand as well as his left foot from below the knee and decapitated him during one point a car entered the parking lot of the cemetery but after shining a light around, the occupant got back into the car and left. Shanae and Martins took turns cutting as they did not have the correct tools for the job at hand. Once removed, these body parts were then placed in bags that they had brought. They then worked on digging a hole near some gravestones to bury the body. But they had neglected to buy a shovel and only had spoons to dig the hole with. Yeah, you heard me right spoons the very same spoons that they had brought for the fake picnic they thus realized that this obviously was a bit of an oversight and wouldn't work so they began to cut the body into smaller pieces so that they could dig a smaller hole They cleaned up the area and loaded the bags into the car. Shanae, in later accounts mentioned that Martins had so much adrenaline pumping that he was unable to drive. And although she did not have much driving experience, nor did she have a driving license, she drove the car back to their flat. There they had dropped off the body parts that they were keeping, the ones that they hadn't buried, and then they drove the car to the CBD where they dumped it at a taxi rank with the keys in the ignition. They had done this in the hopes that someone would steal it. You know, because it's South Africa and everything. They then set out back to the flat on foot, where they slept well into the next day. On Sunday, the 3rd of April, Ephraim Morolong, the supervisor of the cemetery maintenance crew, was called by one of his team members as they had noticed blood spatters and pools of blood in multiple areas on the ground, along with a bloody rag. He wasted no time whatsoever and immediately called the police. In another part of town, another call was also logged to the police about an hour earlier. This call was about an abandoned Peugeot 207cc at the taxi rank in the CBD that a security guard had noticed. The number plates were run and the police had then traveled to the registered owner's address, the Fun Eck residence. Michael Fun Eck's mother, Henrietta, was shocked to learn why the police were there as she had assumed Michael had come home at some point in the night and then left again for work early the next morning. Upon checking his flatlet and calling his boss, she found out that he had not shown up for work. The last conversation his boss had had with him revolved around Michael telling him that he was going to meet a girl in the cemetery, to which his boss had advised him not to do it as it seemed suspicious. To which Michael had agreed. However, he had not heeded his advice. The events which occurred next are almost surreal. Michael's parents had then accompanied the police back to the abandoned vehicle, which was now in the process of being stolen by a one-legged drunk man. He was sitting in the car attempting to start it. Michael's father had wrenched this man out of the car and this man was then arrested by the police. After questioning the drunken thief though, he was cleared of any connection in Michael's disappearance, with him stating that he simply was planning on using the car to get back home and then he was going to abandon it again. And then, whilst all this commotion was happening, a few men had attempted to steal the Fun X Bucky, which they had parked nearby. This attempt, however, was not successful, as Henrietta fearlessly confronted them and scared them off as they mumbled and proclaimed that they had just gotten into the wrong vehicle. Hmm, sounds super likely… A missing persons case was then opened and Michael's parents then decided to head to the cemetery with his oldest sister as this was the last known location of Michael according to his boss. Meanwhile, at the cemetery, Ephraim was waiting for the police to arrive when Henrietta and the family came racing into the graveyard. Henrietta had almost instantly stumbled upon the bloodied rag and the pools of blood. She had picked up the rag without thinking and began to live any mother's worst nightmare. Her scream had cut the air as she realized that it was a piece of the shirt that Michael had been wearing the night before. The family then went running around the cemetery, hoping that they would find him somewhere, injured but alive. Henrietta even recalled pausing by the land by the Jewish temple and cemetery side, as if drawn there. A search dog by the name of Zander was brought in to search for any form of human scent. After an initial sweep of the cemetery, Zander alerted his handler to a section of the gravestones near the Jewish section. After sorting through the debris, leaves and twigs, they uncovered human remains. They found a torso with jeans still attached, amputated legs, missing a left foot, and a left arm. His right arm and hand were missing. Michael's father, Nas, had approached the scene, and was turned away by a police officer who did not believe it was a wise idea for him to be there in that moment. However, he was insistent on seeing what had been found, and he would later go on to identify his son's body by a small birthmark on his leg. He returned to the family, who were anxiously waiting, and confirmed that it was Michael, but did not tell them about the state of the body. Shortly after this grisly discovery, the investigating officer, Hendriana Nell, nicknamed Ulchis, arrived on the scene. She had over 20 years' experience in the police force, as well as experience and training in the occult, which would play a pivotal role in aiding her in the case in the weeks to come. The forensic team removed his body and the search began for the rest of the remains. Initially, it was believed that this might be a Mutti murder. A muti murder is one in which body parts are removed from a live victim for the sole purpose of using these body parts medicinally. The body parts are then mixed with other ingredients or used alone to make a medicine called muti. However, Detective Null did not believe that this was a muti murder due to organs such as the heart and the lungs still being intact. The doctor who carried out the autopsy on Michael also happened to be the same doctor who had helped bring him into this world. He noted that the defensive wounds on his hands illustrated the fight that he had put up against his attacker. Besides the missing body parts, one of his neck vertebrae was also missing, and this would never be found. So, the case actually proceeded quite quickly from here. Detective Null gained access to the phone records and attempted multiple times to call the last number dialed for michael's phone however the phone was turned off she continued calling and finally on the 5th of april a young girl had answered the phone detective nell attempted to get her to meet by claiming she was calling from the hospital regarding a young female who was in an accident and had listed shanae's details this was a trick she had learned in previous years from a colleague In later accounts, Sinead did admit that she was suspicious as she did not have any female friends. However, both her and Martins had agreed to not run if they were caught as that would not be an ideal life. Wow, how very mature and level-headed of them. Sinead Martins arrived a little while later at the mentioned clinic where Detective Null had set up the sting operation. Detective Null had approached the couple and explained the real situation, that she wanted to question them about a murdered young man. They did not attempt to run and Sinead only asked if she could have a moment to speak to Martins and then she would explain everything to Detective Null. This was denied, of course, and they were arrested and placed into two different police cars. Shanae had then directed Detective Null to a flat where the scene became even more grim. Although clean, the flat had an uneasy feel to it. The walls were covered in self-portraits painted by Shanae in various poses, with her eyes missing, looking like an alien, screaming, and with her mouth stitched closed. Shanae had then led Nell to the fridge and pulled out two bags of frozen vegetables. She then removed what looked like a pizza base from the freezer and placed it on the counter, simply unwrapping it, pointing to it and saying, his face. She then unwrapped it. The eyelids were missing and the lips had been stitched closed, but the face itself was perfectly skinned. She then reached back into the fridge. She placed the first container on the table and remarked, his eyes. And then the second one, saying, his ears. Lastly, she pointed to a container on the fridge labelled the Spawn of Our Prostitution, which contained the money that had belonged to Michael. It was his withdrawal from his first paycheck. Martins had casually remarked that they had already spent some of the money to buy shovels for next time, as it was really hard to dig a hole with spoons. In the flats, Michael's belongings were discovered, along with journals that were written by Cheney, with lines like, I will rip off their faces to reveal the truth. She had also included an article with Michael's picture from the newspaper under a bio description of the victim. She had written his name, his age, and his location almost as though she was scrapbooking. This is a common occurrence within serial killers, with them keeping mementos of their kills. Martens persisted with his arrogant attitude, almost chastising the police and the work they were doing, remarking that he could be interfering with the evidence as no one was watching him. In containers in the bedroom, they found the scalp of the kittens that they had killed. Upon being questioned about the death of Michael, Chene told Martens, Martens to show them. He led police to the yard where three plastic bags containing the rest of Michael's body and the dead cats were found. Martens even seemed to smile for pictures whilst the crime scene was being photographed. Sine's father arrived hastily on scene, and he was shocked at the treatment of his daughter, demanding for her to be released. Detective Nell had then walked over and explained what had transpired, so he had turned towards his daughter to ask her. She had then said, It was something I've wanted to do since I was three years old. I wanted to do it, I did it, and I would do it again. Her father was gobsmacked, as one would be, and then he had no choice but to step back. Before leaving the flat, Sinead had grabbed two jackets, and it later transpired that the couple had sewn pills into the lining of the jackets, so that if they were caught, they could commit suicide. However, Martins did not wish to proceed with this plan, so Sinead did not either. It is still not known how he communicated this message with her though. Sinead agreed to tell the police everything, but she told them to listen carefully as she would not repeat herself and she was not there for their entertainment. The couple were then booked and taken into custody. After experiencing an extreme migraine, Nell had returned to work the next morning. Once Nell had arrived at the cells, she had found a group of officers around the cell where Shanae was being held. It was later discovered that she cut her thighs with an unknown instrument and then sat there bleeding with deep incisions. She had written in blood on the wall. Along came a girl. On the floor lay a piece of white bread with a human hair tied around it and Nell recognized the hair as looking like one of her own. Cheney had then asked her, Did you sleep well, detective? Although shaken, Nell had responded, You will never beat me. The story that Sinead told about the murder and the days that led up to it was recited as though she had read the story in a book. That Monday after the murder, Cheney had spent the day skinning Michael's skin from his face. She was emotionless and full of no regret whilst telling the story, and mentioned that Martens had also filmed them at one stage. Martens became less arrogant and, when visited by his mother, regressed to a childlike state. Both parents visited him in the holding cells and his father prayed for him too. They were also allowed to bring him food when he appeared in court and this drove Henrietta mad and she even started shouting at his mother one day. Both Shanae and Martens were charged with murder, robbery and mutilation of a corpse. There was a big emphasis on showcasing the potential and propensity for these two to become serial killers should they be released. They were part of separate trials, Shanae starting first as Martins was delayed as he was sent for three mental health evaluations over an extended period of time. The last deemed him mentally fit to stand trial as his schizophrenia did not play a role in the murder as he was not instructed by either audible or visual hallucinations to commit the murder. It's important to note here that mental illness is not just a reason for crimes there needs to be a tangible link between the crime and the illness in order to plead insanity. He claimed to remember very little about the crime and at times displayed arrogance and aggression towards the prosecutor. He said he hoped that by committing a murder, he would learn something about life and death but that the murder itself was unsatisfying. He did, however, claim to feel remorse and apologized to the Fanek family. A letter was then read by Michael's mother with the perspective of it being written by Michael. This letter caused Martins to break down and he did deeply regret his part in the murder. Professor Lowe believed that due to the extremely rare nature of the crime and the worldwide experiences of similar cases, that Martens, judged solely on his own actions, be offered the possibility of rehabilitation. Martens showed remorse and read a statement saying, Nothing I do or say can bring Michael back. I know it won't help to say I'm sorry, but I don't want you to fill your hearts with hate and anger, and aggression, and at the end of the day, doom your own souls. I also don't want my actions to cause that. So, for what it is worth, I am sorry. He was then sentenced to (coughs) life, plus 15 years. In South Africa, a life sentence is 25 years. As he walked down the stairs to be imprisoned, Henrietta, Michael's mother, lashed out, hitting him on the head. And now we move back to Shanae. Shanae pleaded guilty to all three charges and she refused interviews by forensic psychologists, remarking that she was not their lab rat. She eventually agreed to speak to Professor Lowe, a forensic psychologist with many years of experience after he told her that Martins would be there too. Her trial had begun in November 2011 and she had refused to take the stand and instead opted for a statement to be read out on her behalf. This statement was worded in such a way to allude to the fact that the couple had intended to rob Michael, but it was later divulged from a social worker that Shanae had said, I know I should feel guilty for what I did, Because everyone says I should. Everyone expects it from me. I try to feel guilty, but I can't. Although Shanae did not meet enough criteria to be diagnosed with a mental disorder, she consistently exhibited no emotion throughout the trial except when during a joint session, Martins had squeezed her left hand and made eye contact with her. This would be the last time that the two ever saw one another. Shanae later admitted in court that they had become engaged the day after the murder and even received the permission of her father. When they were together, it was like fuel and fire. Although there was much outcry during this case, there was no evidence of any links to Satanism. The rituals undertaken by the couple were mostly created by themselves. Their private world, Ashmore Valley, was inspired by the occult. They ruled this world and they could teleport their spirits to this world and meet there in their dreams. Between her own admissions and the nature of the crime, her risk to relapse and kill again coupled with her admission would most likely result in her killing again. She admitted that although they enjoyed it, there was no high and jolt of satisfaction and she had already began brainstorming the next kill. Professor Lowe stated that whilst Shanae had traits of both psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, he believed that they were not significant enough to diagnose her. There was discrepancy between psychologists and experts, though. Gerard Labeshkagny, a forensic psychologist, stated that she had been diagnosed with both disorders with very little hope of rehabilitation. The state wanted chennai to be considered a dangerous criminal, as per Section 286A of the Criminal Procedure Act. This would basically mean that although she would have a specific number of years on her sentence, she would not be able to apply for... For parole or be freed after a specific number of years. Essentially, a sentence without a definite end. This was ultimately put in place after further testimony from psychiatrist Meryl Foster, who also gave expert testimony on the Oscar Bistorius case too. Sine was the first female in South Africa to be considered a dangerous criminal. She showed no emotion when her sentence was read. Shanae then received 25 years for the murder and 15 years for the robbery, which will be served concurrently. In 20 years time, she will appear again in court and the judge will decide whether she is fit for release. Ultimately, it was assessed that Shanae's psychopathic traits were more personality orientated, thus fixed and unlikely to change. Whereas Martin's were more behaviorally orientated, which offered the possibility of rehabilitation. This was an important differentiation for Professor Lowe to make as it affected the propensity for future crimes as one cannot change a personality trait. However, behavior is adaptable. The serial killer relationship between Shanae and Martin's was mutualistic. This means that they basically looked after one another and gained strength from each other, which opposes how many other serial killer couples have previously operated. Most serial killer couples operate as parasitic partnerships where one constantly drains and controls the other. So whilst this mutualistic relationship is great for a modern relationship, it's not so great for a serial killer one. So I'm pretty sure at this point you're wondering, well, this all happened in 2011, so where's everyone now? Shanae and Martins continued to write to one another until 2014, when they mutually ended things, citing the reason being is that they had both changed a lot. Martins is serving his time in maximum security prison in the free state. He completed his matric certificate and plans to study further. Martins might also be eligible to apply for parole in the next two or three years. Shanae, on the other hand, is currently serving her time in a female correctional center in Gauteng. She is studying theology teaches art to her fellow inmates, and is considered to be a model prisoner. In 2017, Eric Holler, owner of a website called Serial Killer Inc, shared a letter and sketch from Shanae that was written and drawn for him specifically. In case you don't know who Eric is, well, Eric commissions art and writings from serial killers from around the world, which he then proceeds to list and sell online yeah this is an actual industry the letter she wrote him centers around her naming her favorite bands movies and serial killers it talks about religion her crime and martens the image is of a zombie like creature pulling her innards out eric holler too believes that she was a serial killer in the making And that brings us to the Bella Bottom line. This is the part in the podcast where I pose a question to you, the listener. Do you believe that there were connections to another world that influenced Shanae and Martin's behavior? Or do you think that their fantasy world took root in reality, twisting the boundaries of truth and fiction? Let me know. Thank you so much for joining me on the first episode of Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast. If you would like to see some footage, images, and further source information about this case, please head on over to my YouTube channel, Bala Monsoon, where I have covered this case in video format. Until next time, stay safe, stay awesome, and stay blessed.